We, uh, we finally have actual baseball being played, which means we have a lot to discuss. Uh, later on in this show, we'll take a look, we'll continue our look at the uh, Central Division opponents with a discussion of the Detroit Tigers and Minnesota Twins. Uh, but first, I want to talk about those Red Hot Royals with two of our staff writers. On today's show, we have the two Joshes. Josh Dugan is uh, back on the show. How are you doing, Josh? I'm peachy. Peachy is always a good, uh, good thing to be, and uh, you can follow Josh Dugan on Twitter at Old Man Dugan, that's D-U-G-G-A-N. Yep. Also joining us is uh, the other Josh, Josh Ward. How are you doing tonight, Josh Ward? I'm doing very well. I'm uh, sorry, I don't mean to call you the other Josh Ward. I mean, you're you're just as equal as Josh as Josh Dugan. <laughs> and you can follow Well, uh, I mean, he's been around longer, so I mean, I guess it makes sense from that standpoint. That's true, he does have seniority. So. I, I'm assuming yeah. we're talking years on Earth. <laughs> yeah. Well, years on Earth, time at Royals yeah. Review. All that kind of good stuff. And well, the original I, mean, keys. I mean, I'm 29, so it's not like I'm <laughs> that far behind. I'm 78. <laughs> oh. Little known fact about Josh Dugan. Yeah, at heart at least. <laughs> no, well, yeah. No. For the uh, for this show, I think to avoid any confusion, we'll kind of call you Dugan and War, just to so we, do, we don't have any uh, you know confusion. Is it Dugan? Dugan? Is it, it is. pronounced Dugan? Okay. Because yeah. I've been calling you Duggan. No, no, definitely right. Dugan. Literally until this moment. Well, I know, but I get, I get riper all the time, or much worse sometimes than that, so. Well, we have uh, two weeks of baseball in the books now. The Royals are off to, they got off to a fantastic start, winning the first seven games of the season. After two weeks, they have one of the best records in baseball. Uh, but it's only two weeks, so Ward, Josh Ward, are you going to be the small sample size police here and tell us that it's just two weeks, or is there anything that you, that you can take at all from this first two, two weeks that's meaningful? The only thing that I see that you might actually be able to take something meaningful from is the performance of uh, Mike Moustakis, who is currently hitting 304, 407, 478, but he's doing so with only a 308 on batting average on balls in play, which is, one, it's, it's high for him. So I don't expect him to hit 300 this year. But the fact that he's able to put up, up that slash line and he's only been moderately lucky as opposed to somebody like Lorenzo Cain, whose BABIP is 459, uh, or Salvador Perez, who's hitting 350. Um, his performance in the first two weeks of the season, I think, has been actually fairly impressive. He still has a lot of infield fly ball problems. Uh, he still you know, pops out far too often, but... Uh, he uh, more than anybody else, I think him in the first two weeks has sh- has shown a lot in terms of um, trying to get better and trying to overcome the things that uh, teams are trying to do to shorten him up and him working through that and getting past it. Mechanically, is there anything? I mean, just watching the games, you see him doing, doing differently, or do you think it's just kind of between the years? Uh, the two things that I've noticed uh, consistently: one is that, and I think. I don't remember if it was Ryan or Kevin talked about this. We'll just say it was Kevin because we're all Kevin. We're all Kevins. <laughs> uh, um, his front foot is a lot quieter than it used to be. He doesn't have the leg kick that he did. Um, he seems to be rotating with his hips and his hands lock in, in lockstep with each other as opposed to he used to do this thing where his hands would always 
you know, kind of come out in front of his hips and he would start rotating late and things like that. And I think the leg, li- the leg kick has helped him. And the other thing is, is I think he's much more willing to go the opposite way to inside out a pitch and, and take it to left center field or left field or, you know, between third base and shortstop. But, um, those are, I mean, he's just, he's working against the shift, you know, for the first two weeks. Teams have kind of started to back off of it a little bit, but, uh, I think Oakland played a much more straight up this week. Yeah. But he's, uh, you know, he's still working to the left side, uh, consistently, so. Yeah, I think the, the second point about him just being more willing to go the other way is huge. I mean, I, with a lot of these extreme defensive shifts, I mean, you just want to strangle the guys and say, you know, quit being so stubborn at the plate and just lay one down to third base with a bunt or just try to tap it the other way, you know, once in a while. And I do remember uh, in the postseason, it seemed like Mustakas was at least trying to go the opposite field a little bit more, and he had a little more success. And I don't, and I wonder if like he, you know, they had a talk, or he just thought, you know, this is the postseason, I got to do whatever it takes to win. If that means sucking up my pride and putting a bunt down, which he did do, in the, in right. the was it the World Series that he put a bunt down? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's what I yeah. got to do. That's what I got to do. And because he had some success with that in the postseason, maybe that carried over to this year, and, and he's been. Well, I think he also didn't he also bunt against the shift in the in the Angels series. I know it happened at least once in the postseason. It may have happened yeah, I once, thought it happened more than once. Yeah. But he had a, uh, he had a number of opposite field, uh, either well, at least hitting the ball the opposite field. I think one of the game one of the World Series, all or no, the wild card, I should say, all three of his at-bats, he went the other way, which is really you know amazing considering what kind of a hitter he is, typically. Yeah, and uh, his willingness to work on that is, is an encouraging side. Um, I think... It, I don't know how much it contrasts Eric Hosmer, uh, whose swing mechanics look roughly the same as they did from his, his rookie year. He still got kind of a, a big, long swing, um, and he has a long stride when he goes out, uh, when he's in the batter's box. But uh, Hosmer hasn't performed poorly e- either so far this year, so uh, it's tough to criticize too much about his his swing. I mean, it looks good so far. So, yeah, I think those are two of the guys that when when people talk about the Royals young hitters not listening to hitting advice, those are kind of the two guys I immediately think of too. Like, uh, you're probably talking about Moose and Haas, aren't you? <laughs> but, yeah, uh, dude. You know, so far, the Royals are off to an amazing start offensively. They've hit a lot of home runs. Uh, they've hit for I think that they're leading the league in batting average. Uh, it doesn't seem sustainable, but do you, does it, has it changed your opinion of the offense and how they're performing all this year? Um, I mean, really, the offense, whether or not they do anything, is kind of dependent on both Moustakas and Hosmer, like, you know, beginning to maybe live up to, <laughs> live up to expectations, uh, which were probably unrealistic in the first place, but um, between those two and then, you know, whether or not Rios and Morales pan out, and you know Rios is <laughs> Rios is on the DL, and Kendra's Morales is <laughs> he's he's hitting the ball, so it's hard to complain so far. Um, you know whether or not that's sustainable, and obviously you know there are other guys who are who've been insanely lucky so far. You know Kane, Perez, both of them have had you know pretty big offensive starts, so. Um, you know, obviously there's going to be some regression. I think the offense 
could be not quite this good, but could be better than expected or than, than like safer, safer expectations would have had us believing. Yeah. They're certainly passing the eye test. Uh, I guess the one thing that concerned me is, you know, I, was, I got kind of excited that Morales was hitting so well. And then I looked at his numbers over the first week of last year and he, he got off to a really good start last year too. And just totally cratered after that. But, you know, I, I'm only giving him a bit of, you know, he had, the, he had another big hit against the A's in the finale. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt now, I think, for a little bit and see see just what he's got. Uh, some people, Josh Ward, are already kind of jumping the gun and saying that these guys are, you know, the, the fast start from Rios and Morales, and even Valquez, who's pitched reasonably well his first couple starts, has kind of validated the offseason for Dayton Moore. Uh, you know, obviously, it's, I think, more stat-oriented guys will say it's just, you know, a small sample size. Uh, but has their has them playing well at least affected how you think they'll do? Do you think maybe they won't be abject disasters as maybe previously thought? I think it's it's probably a little too early to tell them. It's certain it it's certainly encouraging that they were able to produce you know a couple of good weeks. Um, but I mean I don't. I don't think Rios, when he gets back, is going to be able to, you know, have a an OPS uh, over 800. I don't think Morales is going to keep an OPS of almost 900. Uh, I don't think Volquez is going to keep an ERA at 2.3, uh, especially when, you know, you only strike out six and a half batters per nine innings. It's, if he does, though, he needs to buy Lorenzo Cain Alexis this year because yes. that guy is saving his bacon on a regular basis. Yes, it's it's true. And, uh, I mean, Lorenzo Cain's saved everybody's yeah. on this pitching staff for the last year and a half now. But um, it's encouraging that they're performing well, but I don't know if I would necessarily – I mean, vindicated, I don't. I think it's kind of a, a, a term that would get thrown around too early, especially this – I mean, if Rios gets back and hits, you know, 200 with a 250 on base for the rest of the year, then that move didn't really work out. If Kendris Morales, like he did, um, you know, with the Twins last year, uh, ends up with an on base around 260 for the rest of the season, then uh, the Royals' offense isn't going to go anywhere, regardless of how well uh, Hosmer and Moustakas do. So... It's a bit early to say whether or not the moves have completely worked out, but it is encouraging so far that they've been able to produce in the first two weeks. Yeah, yeah, I definitely when I see Rios play, I definitely see what they what they see in him. I mean, he he looks the part. You know, he looks athletic. He looks you know graceful yeah. out in the outfield. He had a nice catch last week mm-hmm. against the Twins, I think it was. Uh, yeah. But then you look at his stats and you're like, well, you know, this, how come how come it doesn't translate in more consistent, right. better seasons? Right, and I mean. He he certainly looks the part. I he's a little bit slower uh, as far in terms of range mm-hmm. that uh, maybe you would expect, especially for a guy you know who in 2013 stole 42 bases and 2012 stole you know 23. Um, he seems a little bit slow in the outfield. I mean he's not as slow as say Jeff Francoeur, um, who is remarkably slow, uh, or even, um, but and and part of it might be because we're comparing him to guys like Lorenzo Cain and Gerard Dyson and Alex Gordon, who you know we've been watching for the last three or four years just fly around the outfield. Um, 
but it's it's interesting that his speed on the bases uh, and you know going from first to third on on hit balls and stuff doesn't seem to translate. Although he does seem to have a solid glove and at least you know doesn't take Aoki ish routes uh, to get to baseballs and things like that. So um, that's certainly a good sign. Other than the fact that he's hurt right now. Um, if, he, if he plays a passable defense this year, I think it's probably time to put a statue of Rusty Koontz out in the <laughs> somewhere. Cause, I mean, they, and they talk about how he's been working with him and yeah. uh, some, something something about straightening your legs out. Or I don't know. You know I right. don't understand what it's about. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, if, yeah, because, I mean, the, the, by the metrics last, the last couple of years, he's been pretty pretty awful. Yeah, he's, he's, he's never... He's never really had a good defensive season since about 2008, so... He's a uh, much younger man. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he's he's certainly passable. If he plays a passable right field and if he gets back and he's healthy and he, you know, hits just for an average player, then... Uh, and that was one of the things going to the beginning of the season... Of of the three signings between Morales, Volquez, and Rios, Rios was the one that I felt most comfortable about um, in terms of bouncing back and you know playing a passable right field, but also just because it was a one year deal, there the inherent risk was very limited. So it's it's encouraging so far though. Do you have any thoughts on Alex Rios and how he's played so far, and, and do you have any thoughts about bone density and uh, his ability to stay healthy? <laughs> Uh, I definitely don't have any thoughts about bone density. Um, you know, oh, man, that thread was such a disaster. It, it, it peaks in your mid-30s, I hear. Yeah, yeah, so, totally. That's what the internet tells me. Let them be certain. Uh, man, it's been, man, the comments, the comment sections have been, there have been some bad, bad threads lately. Um, uh, back to real web though. traffic, which means uh, you're doing a great job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes I don't feel like that is the case. Though, so. <laughs> yeah. It's it's hard to on a like a day like today or a day like the bone density day. Those off days, oh god. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, back to Rios. Um, I mean, I, I I'm really hesitant to base anything off of seven games. You know, I, I I hope he pans out for the sake of the team for whom I root. But uh, I'm not going to <laughs> – I'm certainly not going to get too wrapped up in assuming that he's going to keep having a 129 weighted runs graded plus or, or <laughs> a 350-plus WOBA. Um, you know, and who knows – who knows how he'll actually be? How long he'll actually be out for? Um, he hasn't looked. He hasn't looked bad in the outfield. You know, it's not like it's Jose Guillen, uh, <laughs> who that Rusty Coon statue. You could just put it in right field and it played right field as well as Jose Guillen <laughs> did. So, um, but yeah, it's. I don't know. I mean, I think I think he was the yeah he was probably the least terrible. Ending of money in the off season. Yeah, I think you said that before the season too. Which I well of the of the big three. Right, 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 right. Yeah, which, which I disagree with, which now makes me look foolish. So uh, the first well, time. <laughs> we're we're still we're seven games into the season. I, I don't think anyone gets to say they look look foolish seven games into the season. Oh, no, what they predicted. No, I don't. I really. He could be terrible. Like, yeah, I I don't I don't think we should be. 
basing too much on anything, especially of the early returns on these guys. The, you know, the big, the three, the three signings, um, you know, and there have been some, there have been some like reclamation projects that have worked out well for more, you know, Morales and uh, Franklin Morales and, uh, and, uh, Ryan Madsen have both looked good so far. So if both those two worked out, then, you know, the, the bullpen's even better than we thought it was. Yeah, I think Madsen's changeup looks really good. And yeah, I, no, it's I don't know how healthy he's going to be over the whole year, but I don't think you need him. Need him necessarily to give you sixty innings this year. Oh no, he, no, not with this bullpen. Yeah, if he can no. give you some some decent outings, and I think that's that's great. And the rest is pretty much gravy on top of that. But yeah, that was actually a pretty good pretty good find by Dayton Moore. We have to give him credit for that one. Um, speaking of the bullpen and injuries, though, they, the Royals kind of announced uh, Greg Holland is out for two weeks, put on the fifteen day disabled list. Uh, he got the save on Friday uh, Friday's game. Uh, but then the next day they put him on the disabled list. They're calling it a right pectoral, I think, strain. Is that right? Uh, you know, so it kind of came out of the blue. Uh, but Josh Ward, is this? I mean, obviously the Royals have a pretty deep pen, but when you lose, the, you know, the best closer in the league, is that still going to be a pretty big issue for the Royals? Would it be weird if I said no? <laughs> I mean, no. I mean, I obviously whenever you lose a pitcher that dominant, then yeah, there is a little bit of a fall-off, but if there's one team in all of baseball that's really sort of designed to take a hit to the back end of their bullpen, it's the Kansas City Royals. I mean, other other than the fact that Davis is now in the ninth and Herrera's in the eighth, I mean, if, if Madsen continues performing as good as he's looked and can slot into that seventh-inning role, then the the drop-off is... is it's it's noticeable, but I I wouldn't say that it's it's necessarily threatening to, uh, you know, the Royals being able to lock down games in the in the later innings or anything like that. So the the big worry is is Greg Holland uh, in the past has had when he's had sort of these kind of minor uh, kind of things crop up. When he gets back, he's usually a little out of sorts for a handful of games and will be um, a little wild and. You know, will give up a few more walks than you'd like to see, and, and won't get get the strikeouts that he normally does. So, um, but it's 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 going to be okay. I mean, obvious. I, that's that's kind of a weird thing to say when you lose an all star closer, but just for the Royal situation, it's uh, it's a lot it's a lot easier to to handle when you have the depth in the bullpen that they do. In the spring training, I think Will Carroll tweeted that some anonymous scout uh, had told him that the Royals relievers, especially Greg Holland, looked tired. So I, I guess this shouldn't be, if, if you take that with, you know, for what it's worth, if you, you know, this, this shouldn't be, I guess, that surprising. Uh, although I kind of question why Holland would be that tired after an offseason. It was a shorter offseason, but, you know, he's a reliever pitching 70 innings a year. Uh, Dugan, I, I don't know how much you know about right pectoral muscles, but is this something that you think is going to linger around? Is it, it will keep him out of action, you think, for a while? Or is this you know, just a short stint on the DL for him? I mean, from the limited from the limited uh, like information I've seen about the injury, no one seems to be reacting in a way that – no one who would be reacting in a way, uh, you know, that it would be like, oh, man, this is bad. Uh, no one's doing that. So I I am – Far from far from uh, an ex- expert on musculature, but um, I I don't know. I mean, 
it seems to be on the like non-shoulder side of the pack. So I, I, I'm assuming it's not going to be too long. I mean, you know, they've also they have Hojaver coming back too, relatively soon. So the bullpen, I, there's no need to rush Holland back. You know, Holland's probably the second best reliever on the team anyway. So mm-hmm. um, it's you know it's not terrible if if he needs to be rested for a little while longer. You know, Davis and Davis and Herrera can, assuming Herrera's not suspended for a long time, Davis and Herrera can, uh, can you know, hold down the fort ably. And, I mean, they've got, you know, a handful of other guys. And my boy, but I don't know what to do the, with those tough salads and scrambled eggs is oh, out yeah. there. He looked really good this year, too. He has. Yeah. A continuation yeah. of how he looked last year, actually. Yeah, yeah, he was really carried it over. Yeah, it's kind of amazing how many, I don't know how many teams could lose their all-star closer and have it be this quiet of a news. Like, it just no one seemed, And I know we had other news come up this weekend that kind of took precedence, but, I mean, it just, like, no one seemed to bad. And they're like, oh, okay, well, Wade Davis is going to close. No big deal. Like, that's that's an all-star closer. That'd be a huge deal for pretty much any other team in the league, and it's just not a big deal here. It's just kind of amazing and a nice luxury to have. Uh, well, let's talk about some of the uh, shenanigans, I guess, that happened. Well, I, I first want to start with what happened last weekend in uh, Anaheim. Uh, and kind of what's been going on all year, the Royals, they've been getting hit by pitches a lot this year. And I think right now they're second in the league behind Texas and hit batters. I don't know how much of that's intentional or not. I, the opening day with Jeff Samarja, that seemed pretty intentional to Lorenzo Kane. I can't say with much confidence that anything since then until the Oakland series has been intentional. Um Josh Ward, do you think the Royals – is there a reason you think the Royals are going to hit so much? Is it that they have a target on their back? Is it you know, is it just the way pitchers are pitching them? Or is it just kind of a little, you know, weird, you know, statistical noise? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think you can completely discredit the idea that the Royals have, have – uh, that teams are taking the Royals – more seriously. I don't know if I would say that they're necessarily targeting them, but there's, I mean, whenever the American League champion, whenever you're playing against them, there's going to be sort of a heightened level of intensity or, you know, just trying to, to win baseball games. So I don't, I don't think you can completely discount the idea that teams are being more aggressive towards them in terms of play style and things like that. But I think the big thing is that teams consistently have been trying to pitch the Royals inside through through the first two weeks of the season, uh, specifically guys like Mike Moustakis and Eric Hosmer. Alex Gordon has seen nothing but breaking balls inside and fastballs away um, as he's you know trying to come back from the wrist injury. Um, Lorenzo Cain is getting pitched inside consistently, and the thing is, I, I think the strategy, let's take Mike for, for instance, um, the, the strategy against him is to pitch him inside because the idea in years past is that he can't get the bat head out fast enough to get to an inside pitch and take it the other way. He's been able to do that so far this year, so I think the strategy has been to pitch him further inside and even coming in more off the plate to continue to try and jam him and... and when that happens, you start to see um, more of these uh, players being hit hit by pitches. And obviously, it hasn't just been Moustakis, but 
Musagas and Kane, I think, are leading the team right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know Lorenzo Kane is. He's been hit five times, I think, out of the 14 that that the Royals have taken. So um, it's it's been... Oh, I'm sorry. Mustakas and Gordon are tied with four. Lorenzo Cain's been hit three times. This is my bad. Um, but Gordon's been hit four times, despite the fact that he's only played in nine games. And only has 36 plate appearances. So, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of statistical noise. It's a little bit of how teams are pitching the Royals. And a, I think it's also a little bit that teams are feeling like they have to you know, be more aggressive and play up to their competition more so this year. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear teams are pitching them inside as well. Um, and I know a lot of, you know, first of all, someone's got to lead the league and hit, hit by pitches. And actually, it's not even the Royals, it's the Rangers. So I don't know that I can say that teams are necessarily throwing at them. Um, I did, I, I think, though, that Zamarja did kind of set the tone by, by, by plunking Kane on purpose on opening day. And I think that kind of got in people's heads you know, people that other teams are running at us and other teams are throwing at us. Um, uh, but, you know, like that J.R. Graham kid hitting, uh, you know, hitting the Rios so the base is loaded. People were calling for blood for that. It's like, well, yeah, he's a rule five pick who honestly didn't look like he could hit the broadside of a barn at the time. I mean, I doubt he was hitting Rios on purpose with the bases right. loaded when he's trying to stay on the roster. Uh, but, I mean, Josh Dugan, the Royals do... They're a little flamboyant, let's say, on the field. Um, and they are the defending champs. Um, do you get the sense the teams, maybe they are getting under team skin? I mean, we saw the incident last week with the Angels where Jordana Ventura was barking at Mike Trout, which led to a kind of a, you know, somewhat of a standoff, I guess, at home plate when Trout crossed home plate. Um, do you think the team is getting, you know, is maybe... Uh, Getting other teams cross, or and, and do you think that maybe they're, that's, they're just showing a little, bit, a little of their immaturity uh, in the way they're handling it? It's it's a little frustrating, uh, just like watching them jawing. It seems sort of like a all the jawing seems like it's sort of amateur hour. Um, I mean, I it's really hard to say. I don't want to like you know. I'm definitely not like one of those reactionary fans who's like calling for people's heads. Like I just think that's stupid. I mean, you know, I I watched the fracas that <laughs> that uh, unfurled after the after the pitching behind Lowry, and that was you know, I mean, it's more of like you're watching a train wreck than anything else. Um, but it, I just don't. I think really, it's just. I, I mean, they're obviously they do the hand signals thing, and I know like back when the Brewers were winning, uh, when Grinky had gotten traded over there, the Brewers sort of did the same thing, and you know you heard the yeah, same yeah. the same traditionalist like complaining about it, um, and so I mean that's definitely something that sort of ruffles feathers. I think it's sort of stupid that it does, uh, but whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I guess the one thing that does concern me, though, and I agree with you, I think it's, I, I think that kind of flamboyance or whatever you want to call it, enjoying the game of baseball is is good for the game ultimately. And I like guys like Yasul Puig, who has his bat flip, and I like the you know, I like the Royals doing their silly little you know handshakes and signals or whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess what would concern me a little bit is just the way they handle it when they when they do get some sort of pushback on that. Like the way Ventura handled the Trout situation, and I I'm not a big I, I like the way Mike, Mike Trout plays the game, but I don't really like him personally. Um, just the way that Ventura went about it just seemed a little slightly bush league. I thought uh, Josh Ward. I mean, he's left all three of his starts this year under kind of weird circumstances. He had a cramp the first game, second game he had the dust up with Trout, and then he I guess left with another sort of injury, and then the Oakland game. It was got another. Tossed. It was another cramp. Another like, cramp. Right. Right. Is is his poise a concern for you? Is is that something you just he's going to have to grow out of? You think? See, that's that's a difficult thing to say because I think part of his success is derived from his intensity. Right. Uh, in the same way that, uh, I mean, Pedro Martin. I I don't necessarily like the comparison to Pedro Martinez all the time because. I think it's one a little unfair both to Ventura and to Pedro, but he's only um, a Hall of Famer, so <laughs> right. Uh, and Ventura's in his you know second full season, so it's. Um, I think he he gets a lot out of the emotion, but I mm-hmm. think he also needs to learn how to channel that properly because it wasn't so much the dust up with Mike Trout. I didn't understand why Ventura was staring him down after Trout had hit the single. Yeah, I don't feel like we've ever gotten the full story about that either. Yeah, I mean, I the only thing I can gather is that Ventura thought he was hitting it at him intentionally, which doesn't even begin to make sense, or he was just frustrated because it was the first hit he had given up since the first inning. But clearly after that incident, Ventura was too emotional. He couldn't hit any of his spots. Uh, he was all over the place, and then he gave up, you know, the infield single and came out of the game, which I guess you can buy the fact that he got another cramp, but honestly, I think it was just he clearly had lost whatever it was that allows him to bottle that intensity and actually pitch, um, and they just wanted to get him out of the game more than anything. But, yeah, I agree. Uh, the first thing I thought was he lost his composure and just yeah. lost it, and he just... They had to come out of the game at that point. Yeah, and and so well, there's there's it's a double edged sword, um, and he'll I think as he matures he'll you know learn how to get better at it. But um, the Brett Lowry thing, I mean, it's it is what it is. I had a a thirty minute conversation with a friend of mine before the Oakland series started and was trying to explain to him my position of non-retaliation. That well, I didn't let's explain the Brett situation real quick for anyone that's maybe okay. hasn't followed or is living in the cave or whatever. So Friday night against the A's, the team that was playing the wild card, famous wild card game last year, uh, Brett Laurie on a force out at second, slides into uh, Alcides Escobar pretty hard, uh, takes him out of the game, uh, I guess first of all, did, did you think it was a dirty play? It was a dirty slide, or was it just part of the game? Because Lorian says he wasn't trying to hurt him. If you consider reckless to be dirty, then yes. Um, I think it was Brett Lowry trying to kick Escobar's leg off of the bag, 
more so than anything. And that's, you know, a bit of a dirty play. But I think more than anything, it was just um, a reckless play by a guy who has had a history of, of making, you know, reckless plays. And when he was, you know, in Toronto throwing, <laughs> he threw a helmet at an umpire. Um so it's. I think it's, that's against the unwritten rules of baseball. That might be actually uh, against the written rules of baseball. Yeah, I think I think there might be something on the books about not assaulting umpires. Um, but so one, I I think Brett Lowry knew what he was doing and he apologized for it. But the apology was more the way that I took it was, hey, I'd do it again. <laughs> I'm not trying to hurt anybody. But if it happens, you know, that's just a result of playing baseball. And that, I think, is, is, is more than anything the kind of attitude that um, is bothersome. But I thought the situation was over Saturday after Ventura had hit Lowry and gotten ejected from the game. And, you know, everybody cleared the benches and it was just a big, you know, friggin' aggressive show of machismo for you know, really no reason. Um, and then, you know, Casimir comes back today or Sunday and hits uh, Lorenzo Cade, which is probably not intentional. Probably. He there's certainly... Not, you know, there's not a lot of leeway at this point in the series. Like, right. You know, there's, there's just no yeah. margin there for that kind of stuff. Uh, um, but why, after the previous two games... Uh, the that Jim Joyce and company didn't just issue warnings to both teams before the game even started. Yeah, um, was a little curious, uh, and then the fact that <laughs> Lorenzo Cain got hit and the Royals were the ones who had two people ejected was also kind of an interesting thing that happened. Um, yeah, D- Denny Matthews is kind of pra- praising the umpiring crew for the way they managed the game on Sunday and. I thought, I thought it was poorly. I, yeah, I don't understand why there were no warnings given out before both games, uh, and it just never seemed like it should have escalated after after the Saturday plunking. Uh, yeah, because I mean, there's there's no way that the umpires weren't aware going into yeah. Saturday what the situation was, uh, and even more so knowing you know that there's another game left to play, and then Reddick made his comments after the Saturday game, um, so it was clear that something was going, you know, to go at it again. And a lot of people will point to the fact that, you know, Casimir hit Kane below the ankle. Um, but as a center field, as a center fielder, as an outfielder, and as a guy who, you know, derives everything from his legs, uh, going for the knee, which is what it appeared Casimir was trying to do, is actually probably a little more hurtful for Kane than it would be, you know, hitting him in the shoulder or in the back. And so. I will point out that Casimir didn't walk anyone uh, that game either. He had pretty pretty good command, it seemed like, for the most right. part. Um, Josh Dugan, did you... I assume you've seen the, the play from Friday night with Brent Laurie. Yeah. Hard slide part of the game, or is that, was that a little on the dirty side? Well, I mean, it looked like... To be fair, it looked like Escobar was not really in an ideal position to to field that play in the first place. Like his leg shouldn't have been in front of the bag like that on the on that play. So I mean, he he wasn't exactly in position 
Um, I, I don't generally like to try to ascribe intent, <laughs> uh, to actions. Um, I mean, it looked like it, it looked like his foot came up and it looked like it wasn't necessarily clean, but uh, I don't know. I, I certainly don't think that it needed to result in th- three straight days of horse shit. Which is basically what <laughs> happened. Yeah. Yeah, there gets to be a point, like, you know, okay, my take on the Friday thing is that Lori saw there was going to get played second. He went in hard because that's what you're taught to do. You're supposed to go in hard, but you're supposed to go in clean. And he was out of control. He ended up going too hard. I think if you look at his reaction after he goes in and Escobar's obviously hurt, I think Lori is concerned. I think he's like, oh, oh crap, I went too hard and I hurt him. So I think there actually was maybe a little bit of remorse at that point. Uh, that being said, I think, like like Josh Ward said, it was, you know, it was reckless. And I think Sam Mellinger had a comment that pretty much said the same thing. It was just, it was reckless, and you can't really go in spikes high like that and expect nothing to happen. So I think, you know, what I wanted to happen was, okay, Saturday, you get a, you know, fastball is definitely not above the head, but you get one, and not, you know, not a 100-mile-per-hour fastball. Take one in the back. Take your base, which is, to Lori's credit, that's what he did. He went to first base, didn't make a big deal about it. You know, his teammates came out, but he just, you know, took his base, and that was it. That should have been the end of it. Uh, instead, we get, yeah, like you said, just another day and a half of just, you know, retaliatory, macho. <laughs> back For and sure. Forth. Yeah, I just, uh, so, uh, yeah. So, Kelvin Herrera on Sunday. So First of all, like Josh Ward said, uh Casimir hits Kane intentionally or otherwise. I don't know. I, I think that's. I, I was at the game Sunday, so I, I haven't seen the the camera angle, so I don't know. But obviously the Royals took some offense to that, and Kelvin Herrera throws a couple pitches behind Brett Lorry uh, late in the game and gets ejected. Uh, Josh Ward, what do you what do you make of Kelvin Herrera? I guess sending his message that uh, he's not gonna he's not gonna stand for his teammates getting plunked. I I think it's it's stupid. Like Kelvin Herrera in that situation in a one in a one run game, uh, needs to be out there more than he needs to show his teammates that he has their back. Now, it's difficult to say that considering the Royals scored three runs in the bottom of that inning, and maybe that was what energized them to be able to do so. I don't I don't know. It's it's hard to you know put any sort of yeah, quantification on things like that, but um, the idea that f- purposefully removing one of your best relievers from the game to prove a point that is nebulous at best um, is something that I have a really hard time, you know, getting behind and, and saying that it's a good idea. Um, w- one, I mean, if we look at if we look at just the results of the series, the Royals are are hosting the Twins on Monday night without their starting shortstop, without their starting second baseman, with their left fielder still having a wrist injury, with four player with four players slash and managers being ejected, without their closer, and with their third best reliever possibly facing a suspension. Uh, all to prove what? 
I I don't know to prove that they're not going to put up with being treated poorly. Well, they just were again. I mean, the A's came out of the series looking better than the Royals did from just a public standpoint. Um, and two, nothing that the Royals would hope to prove or show happened. I mean, the theory being that we want to show that you can't do this to us. That you can't, you know, hit our players and not expect things to happen. Well, the A's, you know, intentionally or not, continued to hit Royals players, and the Royals were the ones who were ejected, and the Royals were the ones, you know, who were struggling to put a roster to, together on Sunday. So, nothing that they, I think, that they hoped would happen actually happened, and and now. You know, they they are hosting the Twins with all of these, you know, issues now lingering over them. No, I think you make a good point. Like, it, if, you, if, you, if you're going to hit them to, to stop the, the beanballs, well, that, didn't really, that didn't really stop the, the beanballs because they, they kept hitting uh, Royals. Uh, and you're right, now that's going to leave them shorthanded. And I, I mean, Kelvin Herrera is probably facing a, at least five-game suspension, possibly ten, I think. Well, I'm sure that will get appealed, though. Like, yeah, that'll get no appealed. It won't, be, it won't be until later in the year. I yeah. Think. So, they can always hold that off, but but I mean that's still you know five ten games without one of your best yeah. leaders. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that Herrera will get suspended right around the time that Hochaver comes off the DL. And yeah, so, and they usually do it. I think after they go to New York, and then they, they for some reason in the 21st century you still need to make your appeal in person. They don't have I guess they don't have Skype or anything like that. So right, the two teams usually do it when they go to Yankee Stadium. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, do you know what's your take? I mean. What do you, do you stand for these? Do you stand for these bean balls, or, or do you think that the Royals needed needed to make a needed to make a stand, or is this just kind of macho stuff that has no place in the game today? Uh, it's. I mean, it's hard to say it has no place in the game because obviously it does. I mean, as much as I think a lot of us would prefer that the sport had moved past this nonsense. Um, I mean, I think. I, I mean, it's a thing. Like <laughs> other teams, other teams do it too. I would honestly, I think Herrera missed behind Lowry on purpose, and I think that's more of a message pitch than anything else. Because mm-hmm. um, he, he could have plunked him, I think, if he wanted. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he went inside on the first one and then threw behind him on the second. Yeah, and I, I mean. Obviously, Oakland, the the A's wanted to like get up in arms and get all indignant. And Lowry's Lowry, I think, is ascribing different meaning to the to Herrera pointing to his head like think. Uh, he's definitely wanting to like say that he's just saying he's going for his head next time because obviously that's in the clip that everybody's blowing up about yeah. uh, where Lowry's talking about it after the game. I I mean I. It's really all of this is kind of tedious, honestly. <laughs> like, I mean, not not that we have to talk about it, but just like everything that's going on on social media, and <laughs> it's just you know you've got a bunch of a bunch of a bunch of people kind of complaining about like not not being respected or whatever, and it's or or like who are classier fans, all of that nonsense right, right. just needs to go away. Well like I said, um, it's like one of my big pet peeves in sports is when it bleeds in a culture and cities like it, you know, the macho like 
oh, this reflects Oakland, and Oakland's a trash city. Oh, this yeah. reflects Kansas City, and what a podunk, you know, piece of crap city you guys live in. Like, that, no, really, this is, these are 25 dudes that have a tangential relationship to Kansas City and Oakland. They yeah, don't they, really they wear, reflect our city that much. They wear a uniform that has the name of the town yeah. on them. <laughs> it's That's about it's as not, far as that goes. To be honest, yeah. yeah, yeah I, well, I, I, I mean, Alex Gordon went to the University of Nebraska. Yeah, so and he's, he's, he grew up a Royals fan, <laughs> yeah, so there's one. Say, so, I mean, that's close, right? You know, at Oakland, all these guys will probably not be on the roster next year because Billy Bean will trade, you know, for 17, 18 new guys next year. So it'll all be non, it'll all be a non-issue by that point. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I do get tired of this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, it, you're right. It's putting Herrera. He's going to be out, out of action. The Royals had to play shorthanded Sunday. Uh, that being said, there are some things about clubhouses and units, you know, whether it be like the Army or, the, you know, not that the Royals are having plenty of high stakes like that, but, you know, anytime you have a fraternity of guys like that, there are going to be things about the clubhouse that I do not understand as an outsider and that they know how to deal with, I guess, best, you know. If it means bringing in Raul Abanez to talk up the guys and rally them to a World Series, and that's what they need to do, and I'm not going to be able to understand that or quantify that. And if this is one of those things that they feel like they have to do, then I may not understand it, but I guess I, I kind of understand. Uh, it's just when it starts bleeding into results that really starts to concern me and not having Calvin Herrera for five to ten games would probably start to bleed into results. So that's that's what concerns me. You know, when or when your Donna Ventura gets kicked out of a game in the fourth inning, and, you know, and we're, we have to use Johan Pena, who actually pitched pretty well. But that kind of stuff, when it starts affecting the field of play, that's when I start yeah. getting concerned. So. I'd, also, I'd also rather not rely on Johan Pena to pitch yeah. multiple innings a couple did of he times get, a week. Did he so. get sent back down? He hasn't officially, but I would assume it's – I mean, because it seemed like they brought him up just because they knew <laughs> that Drew was going to get – Kicked out of the game pretty quickly. So yeah. Well, and how did how did Orlando Caliste get on the? He, uh, he get on the roster? Raymond Fuentes got. Okay. Yeah. They okay because yeah. that I hadn't seen any. I checked like the Royals Twitter feed. I checked that like there wasn't <laughs> anywhere who said. You should be following the Royals Review Twitter feed. Yeah. Right? Uh, did you say that? Was that on the Royals Review Twitter feed? There's I'm too sure much. Exactly. Yeah. There's too much noise of people like responding to uh, <laughs> responding to all of the nonsense on Twitter. Yeah. You know, this, all this nonsense has been great for our site and great for our Twitter feed, but honestly, I would just like to get back to talking about baseball. Yeah, just talking. Yeah, it would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. If, I, if I remember correctly, it was Gore, Gore came up for two games, and then Fuentes yeah. came up, and then Fuentes was sent down for Caliste. They have used I-29 to shuttle between uh, Omaha and Kansas City quite a bit. Oh, I'm oh, sure I, they had a Learjet that they chartered. <laughs> yeah, they have his last. <laughs> He's obsessed with winning, so it's almost fair to explain. Yeah. Well, hopefully next time we talk, uh, we'll have just nothing but baseball instead of all this intangibles and clubhouses and pride and beanballs to, to worry about. And uh, Maybe we'll have you guys on next time to talk about actual baseball and, and what happens on the field. So thanks a lot for being on the show tonight, guys. Thank you. Oh, thanks. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. We wanted to continue our preview of the American League Central Division. Uh, last episode, we looked at the White Sox and Indians, and today we'll look at the Tigers and Twins. So 
Joining me now to talk about the Minnesota Twins is Brandon Warren. He writes at Fangrass. Uh, Brandon, how are you doing? Oh, pretty darn good. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, we're going to see the Twins and Royals match up tonight, uh, and we already got a chance to see them last week, but I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, how the Twins are going to do this year. And uh, They've had a decade of, of really being a consistent winner in their central division, uh, but have kind of gone through a rebuilding process the last couple years. Uh, last year they lost 92 games, which was a fourth straight season with 90-plus losses, and they ended up firing manager, a longtime manager, Ron Gardenhire. Uh, did you did you agree with their decision to cut ties with Gardy? And how do you feel about the new hire with Paul Molitor at the helm? Yeah, I mean, I think it was time to change it up. It's not not that it was necessarily Ron Gardner's fault that they lost 90 games for four seasons in a row, but at some point you just need to change what's going on in your clubhouse. And the players, I think the players just needed a different voice. And so to bring in Molitor, who was in fact involved with the club as kind of a roving instructor beforehand. So it's not like they went completely off the radar with this guy. But bringing in a guy with a, a Hall of Fame influence, you know, 3,000 career hits and all that good stuff, some World Series cred with the Blue Jays and all and all that, he's it, just it, it's a good influence. He's just a different voice. It's a, pretty much the same group of guys. So, you know, it's, it's just cha- a changing of the guard. Now, the Twins had only had two managers since 1986. I think that the... Major league average was something like six or seven. So the kind of continuity that the Twins had over that stretch is is kind of hard for most fans to wrap their heads around. But at the same time, you know, it, it just it seemed like it was time to change it up a little bit. And it didn't seem like Gardenhire really wanted to to evolve with the game and to to do things the way the game is kind of moving towards right now. So I think it was a good move. Yeah, the the Twins. I mentioned before the Twins are kind of rebuilding a little bit, but at the same time they're still going after free agents. Uh, they signed Ricky Nolasco and Bill Hughes a year ago to pretty good deals. And this past winter, they signed pitcher Irvin Santana, who's well-liked in these parts, uh, for his year of service in Kansas City. Uh, Minnesota signed him to a four-year, $54 million contract, only to see him suspended uh, for 80 games this year for performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about the Santana suspension in a minute, but you know, what's kind of their strategy um, building this team? It seems like they're they're going with some young guys, but they're also still spending some money. Uh, do you see like a clear strategy of, of what they're trying to do? To be honest with you, not exactly. And the funny thing was, yeah, Nolasco, you know, a, a, just a decent right-handed starter who soaked up innings in his career with the the Marlins and the Dodgers for a brief stretch the season before he came over, and then last year, you know, basically ceased to be durable and wasn't very good and a lot of people were really upset about that and now he's on the disabled list right now as well so it's it's obviously been a struggle with him and there's been some some issues with him and fans and that kind of thing so that that hasn't been a good signing for the twins so far and the thing with Hughes that at least made sense was you know he's 27 years old at the time I think and so to take a chance on a guy with a high ceiling that he hasn't reached yet and just you know that I think that should be the goal for a team like the Twins is to to sign young free agents and try to try to you know invest in guys who can become chips for your either your next contention window or to be flipped for something. You see the Cubs do that countless times with guys like Jason Hamill and and other types, but the Twins haven't really done that. Now they they did obviously turn Phil Hughes into a chip for them and they ended up doubling down on that with a five year extension. But I really wish they would have done that this offseason as well with a guy like maybe Colby Rasmus or, you know, a younger type of free agent instead of allowing themselves to go into this season. 
with Shane Robinson and Jordan Schaefer in center field. So, I mean, you spent $100 million in the last two years on pitchers, but you basically left center field wide open if you thought Aaron Hicks wasn't going to make the team. So it, there's some puzzling strategy at play here. I think on the surface you can understand they wanted to go out and get some innings, but it, it just it doesn't really jive from one end to the other with what exactly they were trying to do. It's such an interesting contrast, too, because the Hughes deal, which I think there's a couple of readers on our site who really liked Phil Hughes at the time. I'll give them credit for, for uh, you know, uh, advocating for him. But he, I mean, he's probably one of the, the best free agent signings from that winter. And then the Ricky Nolasco deal, I think, has really been in the opposite direction. It's just a, yeah, it's uh, that's got to be a little maddening to, to, to have that work out that way. Uh, also a little frustrating, I'm sure, is, is seeing Irvin Santana out for half the year after he was popped for uh, using Stanazolol, which I think I'm pronouncing correctly. Uh, how, how big of a blow is that to the Twins, and how do you kind of see the rotation shaping up without him uh, for the first couple months? I mean, to the Twins internally, it's a big deal because that was probably about 80 to 100 innings that they were expecting to get out of him. On the surface, when you look at the landscape of the division and the Twins not really being a contender anyway, you know, you fall back a game and a half, two games in the standings, or or maybe a little more if you employ someone who's below league average, like they are with Mike Pelfrey. So, I mean, there's there's definitely a, an issue there. But at the same time, that has enabled them to give more innings to Tommy Malone, who's been really good so far this year. Uh, Trevor May came up with Nolasco's injury and has pitched two pretty decent games. He was really good yesterday in the win, in the win uh, to end the series here uh, here yesterday afternoon but at the same same time you know with with going out and getting a guy like Santana and, and then basically the Friday before the season happens almost like an Adrian Peter style news dump they're just taking him away I mean, it's huge because the twins were really leaning on him not only to be a guy on the field but hopefully an influence in the clubhouse and you know it's just just not going to be there for the first 80 games yeah, he was a he was a pretty popular guy here in Kansas City, despite just being here for a year, because he he was a really outgoing guy, very active on Twitter, just kind of a, maybe a little weird, but you know, kind of a funny guy. And yeah, I can see that that would be a, a little bit of a blow, especially with a young team, young pitching staff like the Twins have. Uh, the, the pitching may have some question marks, but the Twins' offense was actually quite good last year. I think you guys were fifth in the league in runs scored. Uh, on the other hand, they had some they had a high batting average on balls in play from guys like Danny Santana and Kenny Vargas, who showed some you know showed some talent last year. Uh, but with that high BABIP, you might expect some regression. What are you kind of expecting out of uh, some of the young hitters for um, for the Twins this year, like Santana and Vargas, and maybe guys like Trevor Plouffe and Brian Dozier? Well, Dozier obviously has been fantastic the last couple of years and earned himself a four year extension. Plouffe had a nice year until he broke his arm in the last week of the season. And he started hitting right-handed pitchers a little bit more for the first time and kind of rounding his game into form, played better defense at third base. So those two guys, they're looking to be offensive pillars for them. As for Santana, the batting average on balls and play of 405 last year is, is definitely something to keep an eye on. He was one of the most lucky hitters in the game of all last year. Uh, they gave him a day off yesterday to kind of regroup, but he's back in there today and batting. Lead off, he's hitting 195, 13 strikeouts, and no walks through 42 plate appearances. I mean, that's that's not exactly what I had expected for regression. I'm I'm not on board with with him moving forward as far as a, a, a player like he played last year. But at this time, at this point, I, I didn't forecast this kind of a fall off either. At, at the same time, too, Vargas again, a guy that needs to command the strike zone to be successful. To, to show his big power that he has from both sides of the plate. 
And at times he's done that. He hit a rocket off of Jason Vargas last week. I'm sure you probably saw that mm-hmm. for his only home run of the season. But besides that, he's got one double and and six other hits besides in 43 plate appearances. So he's hitting, you know, he's hitting just 200 with a sub 600 OPS. So he's struggled out of the gates, and he tends to get himself out a bit too much uh, outside of the strike zone. So if he can find that discipline to you know on a three one not chase something which seems obvious to you and me but just hasn't been a thing for him yet if he can do that he he can be a really nice asset because he's got uh, just mad power just fantastic power oh he's so imposing and when you see him at at the plate too i mean kind of reminds you like a david ortiz you know back when he was with the twins i mean just a a huge guy that looks like he could hit the ball a country mile exactly Um, uh, they, you talk about Santana. They moved him. He was playing center field last year, and they moved him. He's been playing shortstop this year. What was kind of the thinking behind behind moving him? And and is is defense going to be a concern with this team? Yeah, defense is absolutely going to be a concern with this team. This is probably the worst defensive team in the American League, and Santana has already cost them, according to defensive runs saved, I think six runs at short, which is just an unbelievable amount through ten games. But yeah, you know, with Santana, the shortstop, the shortstop to center field move was just kind of a an emergency move when Aaron Hicks didn't really do what he was supposed to do last year, and then again this year, he hasn't done that either. But Santana's natural position is short. He's definitely athletic enough to play there. His actions are mostly good. He's got a strong arm, but he's just not polished over there, and it's it's shown. And you know they knocked last year's starter from short. That was Eduardo Escobar who had a really nice year. I think he had like 40 doubles, and now he's kind of their super utility guy. But at the same time, I don't think Santana's out of the woods. And so by moving him to short, they want to get a feel for if he can be a long-term option there. I think they're finding out right now, the early indication is that he's he's not particularly good there. But I think they have the ability to be stubborn with it just because of where they're at. You know, they're 5-7. and seven. Uh, They had a tough start, and they've kind of bounced back with uh, with a couple good series here. But at the same time, this isn't a team that's expected to contend. So it doesn't make sense for them to make short-sighted moves that are going to cost them in the future. If they could lose, you know, lose a couple extra games here, it doesn't hurt them as much as a team that might be in contention like the Royals. I think for a lot of Twins fans, what would, would probably get you most excited about the team is the future. And I certainly certainly have two of the best prospects in the game, and Byron Buxton, who's an outfielder, and Miguel Sano. Um, what's kind of the ETA on those guys? Should we expect to see them this year? And what kind of players do you think they'll eventually become? They've both been extraordinarily rusty coming out of the gates at AA Chattanooga, which is the Twins' new AA affiliate after moving from New Britain, Connecticut this year. Uh, Buxton, out of the gates, not taking a lot of walks, striking out a little bit. He missed a good chunk of last year with wrist issues and then a concussion at the end of the season, went down to the Arizona Fall League and uh, worked off some of that rust, but he's still trying to, you know, find his way all the way back from that. And and Sano had Tommy John surgery and pretty much missed the whole uh, entirety of the 2014 season. So you got two guys that are a year further behind on their curves than you might expect. With that said, if they can show that they can knock that rust off and put a couple really solid months together here, it wouldn't surprise me to see them in the middle of the summer to late in the summer. But if they... If neither of them debuted this season, it wouldn't be stunning. It wouldn't be ideal from a from an excitement standpoint because the fans certainly are looking for something to be excited about, and those guys would bring that kind of kind of ex, um, explosive caliber. You know, Buxton's a, is a five tool guy. He can do everything at least at least pretty good, if not elite, with some of those tools. Snow is going to be the kind of guy that hits for power. Might have trouble with the hit tool a little bit. 
but he's got a strong arm, a uh, little shaky on defense, but he, he, you know, a nice all-around player, a fantasy superstar if, if you're into fantasy baseball, and, and just a really nice player. Now, where, whether that's at third base, first base, outfield, or DH, that remains to be seen, but the hope is it'll be third base for the Twins. Where do they have him playing right now? He's playing third base at double A. Okay. I, th- I think they'll keep him there as long as possible. We saw with Plouffe here in Minnesota that it, even if you start out kind of shaky at that position, it's it's a position you can evolve and grow into. It happened with Corey Koski when he was with the Twins back about ten, fifteen years ago too. So they're not gonna they're not gonna give up on him at that spot too soon unless he really, really looks like a disaster over there. Yeah, if a team can play with Miguel Cabrera at third base, then they can, you know, anything if he hits like that, then I think they can overlook his defense. For sure. Uh you know, this, I think a lot of people predicted the Twins to finish near the bottom of the of the division this year, uh, but they've gone off to a pretty good start this year. If you, what's kind of the best case scenario for the Twins this year, and, and how do they? Is there a way they can can maybe sneak into at least being in the race? No, I, I don't really think that'll happen. I mean, if if they can hang hang tight until Santana gets back, I think the second half is going to be better for them from a a maturation standpoint and from a you know bringing up young guys standpoint and and for once in the last five years they could have a stronger second half than first half they've really faded hard down the stretch the last couple years with with bad august and september so i think the hope is that they'll have more intrigue you know around labor day than they do memorial day for like the first time in a long time that with that said you know that doesn't i don't think i still don't think that puts them in contention to do anything other than at the absolute best, you know, threatened to be 500, and even then, that's 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 a tough that's a tough nut to crack for this team. So if you if you had to project, you know, a certain number of wins for the Twins this year, what what's the number you're looking at as as a final prediction for the year, and and how do you see the Central Division shaping up? Well, I was on 76 before the Santana thing came down. I'm teetering around 72 or 73 right now, like 72 and 90 maybe, but that's not because. I think Santana's worth that much to the team. I just think that the differential between him and Pelfrey and a couple of the other guys in there, and you know, there's still a lot of guys. The center field situation's in flux, and uh, Torrey Hunter and Oswaldo Arcia don't necessarily catch the ball in either the corners or the outfield. And they got a lot of guys that throw for fly balls. So yeah, I think you know, hopefully they don't lose 90 again, and I think they'll be on the fringe of that. But if they stink in the first half and are strong in the second half, and then can pick up some momentum through the offseason moving into 2016. I think that's I think that's the best way to keep everybody in the area engaged. Well, we've seen how teams can be up and down. I mean, it wasn't that long ago the Twins were perennially beating up on the Royals, and the Royals were the bottom feeders. And now the the tables have turned, and probably won't be too long before we see the Twins back up again, especially if those young players end up producing. So, uh, but hey, as a Royals fan, I'm certainly glad to see the Twins down, but uh, I don't expect them to be down for long. But uh, Brandon, thanks so much for being on the show, uh, and you can read. Brandon's work on not just the Twins, but all baseball at Fangraphs.com, as well as on Twitter at Brandon underscore Warren. Brandon, thank you for being on the show. Hey, thanks. By the way, I, I, I skipped your question. I think Cleveland's going to win the division. Oh, yeah. Well, they're, yeah, they're, everyone's picked to win the division. So uh. yeah, yeah, I know they're kind of the sexy pick, but I think they're the best rounded team, and I think they they go and he- they go ahead and do it. Now the Twins just took two or three from Cleveland, so that feels kind of nice too. Yeah, I picked them too, and uh, I don't know. I'm kind of rethinking that now with Detroit and Kansas City off to hot starts, but uh, we'll see. Uh, Danny Salazar just came back up, and I don't know. I don't. I think I've already proven this year. I don't know much about baseball with my predictions. So. <laughs> I hear you. I'm in the same boat. Yeah. Well, thanks again for being on the show, man. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. All right. All right. Uh, our Central Division preview wraps up this week with the team that actually won the division last year, the Detroit Tigers. 
Uh, joining me now is one of the writers at Bless You Boys, our Tigers affiliate on SB Nation. Uh, goes by the name of Hookslide. Thanks for being on the show, Hookslide. Hey, not a problem, Max. I appreciate the invitation. Always uh, happy to talk Tigers baseball. Cool. Well, uh, you know, the Tigers had a really entertaining division race with the Royals last year. Uh, the you know, they kind of went back and forth. There's some it's a really entertaining series in, uh, late in the year in uh, September. The Tigers end up finishing one game better than the Royals, taking the division. But my guess is that before the year, a lot of Tigers would not have predicted the the, the division to be so close, especially with the Royals. Um, is there kind of a sense among the fan base that maybe last year the team underachieved a little bit? And and what what do you think is the reason that 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 they kind of got held back from a you know a pennant or even a world championship last year? Uh, well, to answer the first question, I'm not sure if they necessarily underachieved. I know there was some kind of disappointment with the offseason moves in 2013 and maybe some question marks as to what the new key, uh, team construction would look like, that composition, and what they would be able to accomplish. Um, a lot of us did predict that they would take the, the division, uh, and, and they did. But uh, as the year went along, and this gets to your second question, kind of what held them back, and that was bullpen, bullpen, and bullpen. And that certainly became the case once they did make it to the playoffs and were promptly swept out of the first round by the Baltimore Orioles, uh, you know, a team that they handled very easily throughout the regular season. Um, but the bullpen fell apart toward the end of the year especially, and that uh, that was the main cause, I think, of them being bounced so early. Yeah, it's interesting what a contrast these two teams are. I mean, the Royals struggle so much on offense, and yet the Tigers have such a potent offense, and yet the Tigers have – their struggles with the bullpen, yet the Royals have just kind of a, a, a nice nice depth in their bullpen. Um, as the Tigers kind of approached the offseason, it didn't seem like they really addressed the bullpen that much. How do you how, how did you want to see them approach the offseason, and how, how did they approach the offseason? How would you kind of judge grade uh, Dave Dombrowski, their general manager, on his offseason moves? Well, you know, Dave Dombrowski did what he always does, and that's, you know, he made some really, really good moves, and some moves that kind of left us scratching our heads and saying, well, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, in that latter category, I would include the move to pick up Alfredo Simon from the Cincinnati Reds. I'm not sure why that was a, an acquisition that needed to be made. Um, and he's, I mean, he's, like in his, he's in his contract year, is that right, or...? Yeah, I believe he is. Yes, but definitely on the lower end of your. It's certainly a back end, you know, the rotation kind of mm -hmm. guy. Uh, so not expecting super great things out of him. And yet, uh, you know, Dombrowski did manage to go out and pick up Shane Green, who I enjoyed watching all last year in his rookie year with the Yankees. I thought he was phenomenal, a real talent up and coming. So very happy to see that they picked him up. And so far, uh, you know, the early uh, outcomes have been very, very good. I think he's given up one run in something like I don't know, thirty-six something like that innings. Uh, very good acquisition. Um, as far as the bullpen, uh, we, I'm not sure what the fans expected Dombrowski to do because the closer, Joe Nathan, who gave us so much trouble last year, uh, had another contract year coming up. So it's not like I, no, I don't think anybody expected that he would be traded or, you know, uh, designated for assignment. Certainly nothing like that. Um, so, you know, there were some moves made to try and shore up that bullpen, picking up Tom Gorzolani, who seems to be doing uh, working out OK so far. Um, but again, this year as last year, the big piece of the puzzle was Bruce Rondone. And uh, last year, of course, he fell out early due to Tommy John surgery and missed the entire year. This year, he has started the season again on the disabled list. So we still haven't really seen that that stabilizing element out of, out of Bruce Rondone yet. And I know Dombrowski is kind of counting on him again. Uh, I should say the third year in a row. Of course, in 2013, I think it was, Rondone was pegged early on to be the closer, and that just never never worked out because he spent so much time on the disabled list and down in the minor leagues. 
one of the big decisions the Tigers had to deal with in the offseason was uh, Max Scherzer, who was probably the most one of the most coveted free agents over the winter, and he ended up signing a seven-year, $210 million contract with the Nationals. Did the Tigers uh, ever make kind of a, ser- a serious run at him, and, and how do you see the Tigers overcoming his loss in the rotation? They did make a, a pretty good run at him uh, prior to the beginning of 2014. Um, I want to say they offered him $144 million for a six-year deal, and he turned it down and then said, basically, I don't really want to talk about it during the year. So that was kind of the end of the discussion. And I think people kind of knew at that point, uh, having turned down that initial offer, that uh, Mike Illich and Dave Dombrowski were not going to really make, a, a, you know, they weren't going to offer him any more than that, I don't think. So I think that's part of why they picked up David Price at the trade deadline. And that's largely, I think, how they were planning to fill that hole with David Price. I would not be uh, surprised to see them make him an offer, you know, to extend that contract. So between uh, David Price, uh, Anibal Sanchez, and Justin Verlander, who everyone hopes, you know, kind of has a bounce back year this year, uh, you know, I think that's how they plan to fill that that space left by Scherzer. Yeah, I think that Price move last year when they traded for him in midseason, that was a pretty savvy move to kind of hedge your bets. Is there Has he given any indication that he'd be – Willing to stay uh, in Detroit? Is this something you think they can work out midseason, or is it is it likely that he hits free agency at least, and Detroit will have to match any offers that he gets on the free market? Well, I mean, as far as anything that David Price has said, certainly it's kind of the PR stuff that you usually hear. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, I'd love to stay in Detroit. The fans are great, that kind of thing. But you know, you can't read too much into that in terms of, well, yeah, then he's going to sign. You know, he's a baseball player. He's a professional. He's going to go. You know, where he can make the most money. Uh, for the you know the longest amount of time, I wouldn't be surprised if he wants to test you know the free agency waters. Um, so yeah, and I don't know that a lot of these guys really like to mess around with the contract stuff during the year. I think a lot of them find that as a, a distraction. So I would expect the season to kind of play itself out, and then we'll you know talk about what to do with David Price towards the end of the year. Well, the Tigers certainly didn't. Uh, they st- certainly still spent money in the off season. They locked up uh, Victor Martinez. They're a slugger uh, really early in the offseason with a four-year, $68 million contract. Uh, we already saw him get hurt in spring training, but he, uh, he didn't miss any action in the regular season. He's off to a pretty good start. Uh, the team has kind of locked up a lot of guys through some older older years, like uh, Victor Martinez, Justin Verlander, who you mentioned. He's, he's locked up to a long-term deal. Miguel Cabrera, uh, who's still in his prime, still you know one of the best hitters in the league, but he signed through quite a few years. Is there is there a worry at all among the Tigers fan base that um, the that the team maybe won't have financial flexibility down the road, or is there are you, are you guys pretty confident that Mike Illich will provide whatever resources they need to to be competitive? Well, I think it's it's kind of a two pronged you know approach that not only are we not too worried about Mike Illich you know not being willing to spend the money, but beyond that, Dave Dombrowski has proven over and over again that he can take the money that he's given you know the budget that he has to work with and do some pretty amazing things with it. Uh, you know, as far as the long-term players and, you know, what this contract, those contracts mean, and, you know, there is some talk of that, kind of, you know, like saying, well, are they becoming the Phillies? You know, is the core of this team mm-hmm. going to become just this sort of aging, you know, softball league sort of uh, situation? But um, I would, you know, point to the fact that they had Prince Fielder locked up for a 10-year contract and millions and millions of dollars, and people thought that was pretty immovable, and yet uh, Dombrowski surprised everyone by offloading him onto the Texas Rangers and picking up. <laughs> Uh, nice Ian <laughs> yeah. Right, you know, and so and people just kind of said, again, like, you know, Dave Dombrowski is a wizard. He can seemingly, you know, do anything. So I would imagine that even if someone like, say, Justin Verlander did start to kind of decline heavily in the next couple of years, I, I, I have a lot of 
faith in Dombrowski that he could make the moves necessary to keep the core from becoming irrelevant, you know, and outdated. Yeah, I think Dombrowski, I mean, certainly one of the, the better general managers in the game. Uh, and, uh, yeah, like you said, he's always interesting, always coming up with creative deals. Uh, one of the creative deals he had in the offseason was trading Rick Porcello to the Red Sox for uh, Jonas Cespedes. Uh, I think I'm saying that right. I always get his name wrong. Uh How's that deal? How did you guys, how did the Tigers fan base react to that deal? And, um, how does he kind of fit into the lineup for the Tigers this year? You know, some people really liked the deal, uh, because, you know, Cespedes has star power, right? I mean, he's the guy that won the home run derby before the all-star game two years running, you know, so there's a lot of flash and pizzazz. And so I think some people were kind of excited by that. Others saw the real value in Rick Porcello, who was quietly becoming a very, very solid number two, if you know, not eventually a number one starter. He certainly um, got paid like it by the Red Sox. He sure did. And, and, you know, based on the season that he had in 2013 and then in 2014 was even better. I think he had, I want to say, three complete game shutouts last year. And just game after game, he was able to go very deep into the games, pitching into the eighth inning, sometimes the ninth, uh, with very low pitch counts. He's just a very effective and efficient pitcher, not a power arm, not a lot of flash. And so, like I said, I think he was quietly becoming a very, very good pitcher. And some of us, I think I was on that side, certainly, that, that said, oh, no, you know, why did you get rid of Rick Porcello? He's the one you should have locked up for the long-term contract. Um, but I would say now, kind of looking at what's happening right now, that Shane Green kind of fills that role. Uh, Shane Green is another one of these uh, sinker ball pitchers that can get a lot of ground ball outs. Very efficient. Uh, like I said, he's only given up one run, earned run, that is, uh, in his first three starts. And he's pitched, I think, eight innings in all three of those games. So uh, definitely uh, more than fills the the spot that left by Porcello. Now, as far as Cespedes goes, yeah, aside from the home run derby power and the you know the, the great PR that you get for that, um, he really is a, a, a good player. I would grade him out offensively. Uh, very similar to uh, Torrey Hunter. The numbers are very, very similar in terms of the batting average and the slugging percentage, the on-base percentage, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, I, I expect that he's probably going to hit uh, 20 to 25 home runs this year. He's going to be good for another, you know, 80 to 100 RBIs. He's also going to hack at the plate and strike out a lot. Uh, what he really brings to the table, though, outside of the lineup, is is the defense in left field. Very, very strong defender. Uh very strong arm, as we all know. We've seen those plays, you know, on the MLB Network um, and the highlight reels. And that's one area where I think the Tigers are a lot, lot, lot better this year uh, than they were last year and where they can sort of match Kansas City in that realm. You talked about the differences, you know, how our bullpen is very, very bad as opposed to the Royals who have one of the top bullpens. One of the things that I always liked watching with Kansas City last year was their incredible defense. I mean, these guys don't let a hit drop anywhere, you know, in the infield and the outfield. And uh, it seems like in 2015, the Tigers are fast approaching that same sort of level, uh, getting Jose Iglesias back at shortstop. So now you got that combination of Kinsler and Iglesias up the middle uh, with uh, Cespedes in left and Anthony Ghost, who has, you know, more than proven himself already to be a very competent center field defender. And then J.D. Martinez in right. So it's it's starting to really shape up in terms of the defense. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that, that that I know there's a lot of articles when after the Royals made the World Series that a lot of teams are going to start copying their, uh, I guess, blueprint for success. And it, yeah, it is interesting. The Tigers are moving to more of a, a defense-oriented team. Now they can still mash, and they've gone off to a good season um, already with the bats. Uh, how how do you see the team? You know, getting off to a hot start. They have the best record in the league. Uh, what what's kind of stuck out with you in the first two weeks of the season uh, as far as the Tigers and 
and their success uh, chances for success this year? Well, I, I wouldn't say the offense, um, because the offense to me looks very, very similar to last year, which is a very good offense. I'm not downplaying it. I'm just saying that's not really a, a standing out point because it's, you know, they've had a good offense for several years running. And, and like I said, it looks about the same now as it did last year. Uh, what is really standing out is the starting pitching, which again, you know, losing Porcello, losing, uh, Scherzer was, was a big question mark, you know, so would David Price and, uh, Anibal Sanchez, Justin Verlander, Simon and Green be able to kind of keep that rotation where it needed to be? So far, they've been amazing, uh, going deep into games. We've hardly had to touch the bullpen, which is a good thing. Uh, so that's been a very, very pleasant surprise, and we'll see how long that goes on before the inevitable, you know, regression starts to take place. And then, as I mentioned, the, um, the defense has just been outstanding. It's, it's been a very, it's a breath of fresh air, you know, to see the plays that are being made out there in the outfield, the plays that are being made in the infield, uh, just a, a lot more uh, leather, you know, going around and, and run prevention happening. So that's been it's been a pleasant surprise. Yeah, I've mentioned this several times, but you don't really I don't think you appreciate defensive metrics and defensive stats until you kind of go from being a bad defensive team to a good defensive team. We had a bad defensive team, you know, five years ago. And yeah, it's just it's just night and day, and to see the the outs converted, yeah, it's it's a great thing to have. Um, Brad Osmus was on the job for the first time last year as his first uh, year as manager. Uh, had didn't had he hadn't had any managerial experience before that, and he had some big shoes to fill. Uh, the popular Jim Leland, who uh, had taken the team to World Series, uh, stepped down. How how fan how's the fan base kind of uh, see Osmus? Uh, how do they kind of grade him uh, for his first year on the job? Well, if I can't speak for the fan base at large, because, you know, fan bases can be kind of funny that way, and managers are always the you know, walking around with this giant target on their backs, you know, no matter what they do. You talk about Jim Leland being popular. Well, you know, I can tell you, he was certainly popular after the fact. You know, that's, <laughs> that's when everyone sort of looks right. back with rose-colored lenses and, oh, we loved Jim Leland. But, boy, when he was actually managing, there were so many complaints about his bullpen huh. management, about how he left starters in too long, about how he... Uh, his infamous Sunday lineups when he went out the mm-hmm. B crew every Sunday, you know, so it's just one of those things. It, it, me personally, um, I, you know, I, I wanted to cut Brad Osmus a lot of slack because it was his first year, uh, managing really in any capacity in the, in the major leagues. And so I, I you kind of expect that he's going to be a little more, um, what's the word, tentative, you know, in his, his movements and just sort of, and he's since, uh, confirmed that in interviews and said, you know, he's just basically kind of not wanting to rock the boat the first time out. This second year, I think he's going to be a little more uh, playing by the gut, if you will, you know, and more willing to make his own decisions, um, not necessarily to play by the book all the time. Uh, the one thing that I, I think stuck out last year that still maybe sticks out, we'll see what happens this year, was just the way he managed the bullpen. It was very much kind of a paint-by-numbers, and I know you guys, Royals fans, are certainly familiar with that, uh, with the way that Ned Yost uh, handles his bullpen. It's very much, you know, uh, paint by numbers to say, you know, it's the seventh inning, so now I'm going to go to Herrera. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's that kind of thing. Um, Which is a lot easier to do when you have Calvin Herrera. <laughs> sure it is. Yeah. Sure. But I remember there was a game last year, I think the Royals were playing the Red Sox, and there came a point in the sixth inning, I think they had the right. bases loaded, and Herrera was ready to go or should have been. And I think Yost's comment afterwards, well, he's not my sixth inning guy. Are you kidding? And, you know, I could certainly uh, – I felt for the Royals fans that day because we had the same kind of thing with uh, with Brad Osmus, and that's how the season ended in the ALDS. You know, with uh, in Game Two, with the Tigers having the lead and coming down to the uh, I think the eighth inning it was, um, it would have been an ideal situation to bring in um, 
Kyle Albuquerque, who had been very, very good out of the bullpen against both lefties and righties. And instead, uh, Osmus painted by the numbers and said, well, it's the eighth inning. So I go to Jabba Chamberlain, who had not been good for many, many weeks and uh, had, in fact, gotten into a lot of trouble the night before. And so we all kind of collectively groaned when Chamberlain came in just because it was the eighth inning. And he very predictably ended up uh, blowing the game. So that's something that I think all of the Tigers fans are, are looking to Osmus to see. Will he have the flexibility this year, especially with the Joe Nathan wild card still out there? You know, does he have the guts to uh, put Nathan on the on the back burner and let Joaquin Soria do what he's doing very well right now, which is closing games, you know, lights out? And uh, will Osmus have the flexibility to kind of you know uh, play the matchup game, put the best pitcher in the you know highest leverage situations, or will he continue to kind of follow the the flow chart? So I guess we'll have to see. Well, we've been uh, asking each of our guests to kind of put it on the line and give us a number, how many games their team's going to win. And you get the advantage of actually having to see your team play for two weeks, and they've gone off to a great start. So I don't know if you want to let that color your view of how they're going to do this year, but uh, if you want to give a, a number, how many games do you see the Tigers winning this year, and then how do you kind of see the Central Division shaking out when it's all said and done this year? Well, before the season started, you know, of course, at SB Nation, we all kind of, I think all the teams did their predictions and picks, and at the time, I... I was kind of down on the whole situation. I think I picked the Tigers to finish second. Um, but there was some question marks at the time, like I said, just with the way the pitching rotation seemed to have gotten worse on paper, at least, and the bullpen had not gotten any better. And so you kind of go, well, overall, then they're not going to win as many games. And with the fact that they barely beat out Kansas City last year, you know, the natural end of that equation seems like, well, then they're not going to they're not going to win the division this year. Um, the thing that I failed to take into account, I think, was, again, that defense and seeing the defense doing what it's doing, which I think feeds into uh, allowing the starting pitchers to go deeper into games uh, because the defense is converting outs and getting their pitchers out of the innings faster. Um, I think that defense is worth two to three extra wins this season. So I would say the Tigers won 90 games, I think, last year. I would put them probably around 92, maybe 93. And that's, that's a highly qualified statement, depending on how the uh, the bullpen situation shakes out. Who do you have? Uh, who do you have up uh, uh, competing for the division? Then are you on the Cleveland Indians bandwagon as well? Or? Um, no, I you know I'm very bad at these predictions. I have to admit, um, I I was kind of high on the White Sox um, mm-hmm. before the season started, just because I thought they were making some really radical and good moves in the offseason, like picking up uh, Jeff Samarja, you know, you got to go, well, then now they got Sale and Samarja and Quintana, you know, it's, it's shaping up to be a very good rotation. So, um, you know, they, they have uh, a pretty decent offense, but uh, it's, it's not working out for them yet. It's still early. I realize that. Um, not too worried about the Indians uh, necessarily, but uh, the Royals, you know, obviously are off to a, an incredibly hot start as well. They kept pace with the Tigers, um, you know, right up to the, what, the eighth, seventh or eighth game, I think. So, uh, you know, I, I'm still not even convinced necessarily that the Tigers are a lock for uh, the division. I think it's it's going to come down to the wire with Kansas City again. Well, yeah, it should be a really interesting race. I think the fact that both teams have gotten off a good start, I think, bodes well. And, you know, it was a lot of fun here in Kansas City last year, even though we didn't win the division. Uh, and I, But we just enjoyed, I mean, it was just a great, those series against Detroit, I think, were just so much fun for us. And uh, we'll, we'll have to see how it all plays out. But uh, thank you so much for being on the show and telling us about the Tigers. Uh, you can follow uh, Slide at blessyouboys.com and on Twitter at hookslidebyb. And uh, thanks again for being on the show, man. 
Hey, not a problem, Max, and I look forward to talking to you on the Bless You Boys podcast uh, this coming weekend. And we'll That's talk right. about what, what the Royals are up to this year. Yeah. All right, that'll be great. Yeah, I look forward to it. All right, thanks so much, Max. All right, thank you. Well, that's our show for today. I'd like to thank all our guests for being on the show. I'd also like to thank the Fleshlights for providing the music. You can find links to some of the things we talked about on the podcast at our site at royalsreview.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Royals Review. I'm your host, Max Reaper. Thanks for listening. <laughs>